I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. And today we look at the importance of cost-effective energy in the growth of an economy. In uh, June this year, President Trump spoke of a new energy policy. In fact, many of the moves he's made on this have been unpopular with many people. But his motivation has been to make energy more abundant. That's why he supposedly withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord. That's why he rescinded Obama's clean power bill, energy at all costs. That's why he wants Canada to push ahead with the Keystone XL pipeline. So is he right on this, that the growth, the key to growth, is more energy? I mean, Steve, you've said... The availability of energy is the driver for growth. So presumably that means more energy that a country produces, the better off the people are and the bigger the the, the opportunity. So is, is Trump right on this? He's right with one little uh, exception, and that is he's not particularly worried about the distribution of income, is he? The more that goes to the, lo- the winners and the less that are losers, the better he thinks the world is, even though the losers are the ones who voted him into office. So there is an issue about, I mean, if you, could, you, could you imagine the energy consumption per capita of one Donald Trump. I mean, I'm talking about... Uh, <laughs> what his U- footprint is. Running. That's right. Well, yeah. half of Washington, probably. Yeah, something close to that. So uh, we've got an enormous uh, maldistribution in terms of how much access we get to energy. And the question um, that I think we're going to have to face in the future is we're going to have to provide sufficient energy that everybody on the planet um, gets a, a, a capacity to live a moderately comfortable life um, but and we allow for some to get much their hands on much more energy than that effectively courtesy of their uh, their contribution through innovation to what humans can actually produce and what's sustainable on the planet but there's a limit and with the extent to which the financial sector has amplified the gains for Ponzi merchants uh, I won't call accused Trump of being a Ponzi merchant because they don't like lawsuits um, but those sorts of personalities get an enormous amount of the energy of the planet. And the inequality of that, as Piketty has shown himself, has is, is, is grown dramatically in the last 30, 20 or 30 years. So we've got more inequality in the distribution than is necessary to give a well-functioning system because the best uh, functioning in terms of GDP growth uh, and overall per capita incomes was back in the 50s and 60s when we didn't have uh, mega fortunes like that that Trump uh, has made his name for. But, I mean, Donald Trump obviously doesn't care too much about the rest of the world and probably doesn't care – well, he certainly doesn't care too much about the environment or he doesn't believe it's having any impact on the environment. As far as he's concerned, it's America first. Mm. So if they have more energy, they produce more energy. I mean, already, look, the uh, energy use – Per capita, according to figures from the World Bank in in America, is two and a half times what it is in the UK. Um, so, I mean, they are already big consumers of energy. If they have more energy available more cheaply uh, across the board within America, if it's cheaper to fill up your car, it's cheaper to buy electricity, then uh, companies are going to be able to expand more cheaply. That's going to be good for America, isn't it? No, and this is the intriguing thing, because if you look at when do you think was the peak energy consumption per head in the USA? Yesterday? I, I was going to say pretty soon. Yeah, pretty pretty recently, yeah. Okay, 1979. All right, okay. 
Okay. Now, that was the peak of energy per capita in the United States. This is data from the World Bank. There's actually a uh, – I couldn't read it out over the, over the, uh, the radio, but I can whack it up on the uh, – uh, when we put the podcast up on Patreon, I'll give the link here. And energy use per capita in the United States peaked in 1979. Now, the date might ring a bell. That was, of course, the second OPEC price rise. The previous peak before that was 1973 yeah. at 8,163 kilograms of oil equivalent per head. Then in 1979, <clears throat> had a bit of a fall in the meantime when the, the, the price rise, OPEC pri- oil price went from $2.5 a barrel to 10. Then it fell a bit. Then it rose once more. There was a second OPEC, which is back in 1979. And after that happened, he went from 8,400 kilograms of oil per head by the way think about that in terms of just imagine eight thousand kilos of oil we're talking pretty much what eight thousand effectively i don't think it's one kilo per liter but it's something close the water is one kilo per liter i think oil is lighter but it's something at the same scale so if you think about that in terms of the number of uh, of, of liters of oil you put into your car like 50 most most mm. tanks come out at 40 40 liters you know, that's that's a substantial numbers of, of refuels of oil. That's 200, effectively, car refuels of, of, of petrol a day, a year, for the average American back in 1979. Now, that fell to 7,000. So, it went from 8,500 to 7,000 uh, by early 1982. It then rose until 2000. And again, 2000 turns up as a peak on so many fronts. Uh, but that's back to only 8,000 barrels, uh, kilos of oil per year equivalent. So why the, the, why the, the drop latest, then? Are they, sorry, give us the decline. What did it get down yeah. to, sorry? And then, and then, and then well, tell, well, and tell me why, why the decline. Okay, we're now back to 6,800 kilos of oil per head. That was in 2015. And that's an equivalent level of oil consumption per head to 1967. So we are now consuming, the Americans are consuming as much energy per capita now as they were back in 1967. Now, and, and, and that is about one third less than they were consuming in 1979. And yet, because you had said, you know, the more cheap energy, the more energy that we produce, I mean, that is the, the biggest growth mm. to, to, uh, for an economy. The availability of, uh, of cheap energy allows yeah. us to do more. So if we have cheaper. I mean, we, yeah, but the oil couldn't oil couldn't be cheaper. And Donald Trump's approach is to say, well, let's make it even cheaper by producing even more energy uh, ourselves, so we don't have to worry about the vagaries of OPEC. Yeah, well, the the, the actually what's actually happened in 1979 is a break in a trend that goes back 150 years, and this is quite intriguing. If you look at there's a wonderful data which I haven't actually got the source data. I've got to see if I can download it. But there's a wonderful uh, blog post which I highly recommend. Readers to have a look at called Finite Physicist Meets Exponential Economist. And in that uh, wonderful discussion between a, a, a physicist who knows the, th- the laws of third thermodynamics and an economist who didn't have a clue, uh, one piece of data the physicist used is a very strict linear relationship between total energy consumption in the United States and GDP. And this is data, I've actually found the data now. And there is, again, the break that we have, we've, we've broken away from this virtually linear relationship between 16 or 1700 and 1950, a linear, in terms of an exponential plot, so exponentially increasing energy per head, exponentially increasing GDP per head at the same time. That trend broke in 2000, and it started breaking back in 1979. So partly that's a, that's a good thing in the sense that 
we've been driven to think about how efficiently we use the energy we, we capture right now. And there has been, if you think about the old gas guzzlers cars from the 1970s, uh, you don't advertise, car, cars didn't even advertise uh, petrol consumption per Per, per mile back then. It was speed and acceleration that mattered. We still got off on speed and acceleration, but a major factor these days is, is power consumption per, per, per kilometre covered. And that's improved dramatically, largely because OPEC made it absolutely vital. Uh, America, uh, when it was importing that oil, couldn't, imp- couldn't afford to, to pay the prices in export terms. And it's even can't afford to pay it when you have that high level of, of prices of low energy efficiency in American oil, American produced oil and American cars. So, so there has been a large increase in efficiency. Right. So that, so that correlation between growth and energy availability has, has, has weakened then. You still need energy, obviously. Yeah. But we're doing more, <coughs> but we're doing, but we're doing more with it. Yeah, um, but the other side of it is that when you, is, as well as oil consumption per head peaking in 1979, when you would adjust for inflation, that's also when the working class in America's per capita income also peaked. So we've had an increase in efficiency since then, and uh, 8,400 kilos of oil uh, then gives you the same level of income as 6,800 kilos of oil per year do now. But... That decline in energy consumption has been matched by a stagnation in the per capita income of American workers, the American working class. And, uh, and, and, and that is a serious social issue, which we're seeing, of course, in the very fact that Trump got elected this time around. Right. But Trump's answer is, is more energy. You know, he said, uh, uh, here's a quote from him, we've got near limitless supplies of energy in our country. Uh, he said, you know, powered by new innovation and technology, we are on the cusp of a true energy revolution. He obviously thinks the answer to all the problems that, you know, that you're describing there, the, the people out of work, is if we had more energy, more people would be employed in the energy industry. But presumably, he's also saying there'll be the spin-off benefits of, of industries which rely on energy energy for growth yeah but again the type of energy he's talking about is the is, is back into coal once more mm. uh, and the, the, that's the, that's the dangerous thing coal i think the coal reserves we have on the planet are sufficient to handle the uh, current level of consumption growing at about three percent per, per per year for 300 years right so but, but if you- uh, it's what somebody what somebody once said the stone age didn't end because of a lack of stones the coal age is not going to end because of a lack of coal we simply can't afford to burn that much stuff yeah absolutely i mean and he is obviously he said uh in, in this same talk back in june uh we've got 100 years of natural gas we've got more than 250 years worth of clean beautiful coal he's obviously been talking to tony abbott but if we <laughs> if we if we ignore the environmental impacts for a moment i mean if he if he was looking at alternate forms of of, of energy that was made available more cheaply is that going to drive more growth for the U.S. economy? It is. It, it can. Uh, the, 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 main, the main restrictions that the American economy faces are not energy-based. Uh, we believe it's like the global warming issue. are not energy-based. They're financial. And this is what's not being tackled at all, of course. It's, uh, yes, it's, it's true that if you say, okay, if we can increase energy per capita, uh, then we're going to effectively increase living standards because in a fundamental sense, GDP is useful work and useful work is done by turning available energy and turning into, into useful, useful energy, useful work. So yes, that increases per capita living standards. And that's why we're so much better off than people from 200 years ago. But uh, you're not going to get that growth in the 
capacity to turn that energy into useful work if you have a financial system which won't finance the investments in the first place. Right. And this is the um, the real trap. I think we uh, his focus, Trump's focus as usual, is a distraction from the real issue. But, I mean, you could uh, – governments could do that, couldn't they? Governments could say, well, look, the most important thing we need to do is make more energy, cheaper energy, available worldwide. We want it to be uh, – not even worldwide, within our own country because we think it's going to drive growth. Uh, look at what the Chinese are doing, obviously, in terms of building infrastructure, and uh, which is – such as fast rail, which is very energy dependent. Um, if governments have this ability to create money or issue bonds, um, then wouldn't the most sensible thing for them to do with that with those bonds is use it to invest in energy production? If energy production is going to multiply the growth of the economy, well, that's that's a major focus of the DM twenty five and the Democracy in Europe twenty five movement that Giannis Varoufakis started. Use um, the, the state's capacity to create money to invest in green in, in green technology and uh, and hasten the move from carbon-based energy production to non-carbon-based. So that is feasible. Um, but I, I, again, I you know I'm, I'm skeptical about the extent to which we'll actually do that. The ideas are there; they can work, and certainly government funding. Uh, has been a large part of why China has been successful, in fact, a large part of the reason why photovoltaic technology has worked extremely successfully in China. So China is making a very large move now from coal-based energy to photovoltaic energy uh, is because uh, the New South Wales <laughs> government didn't provide the backing uh, to enable the advances being made at the University of New South Wales by, I think his name's Green. I can't think of it. I've forgotten the actual... Uh, professor there, uh, but he, one of his main students was a Chinese on Chinese student who went back to China, took the same technology over there, and is, with huge state backing, has now become one of the world's success, most successful capitalists on the basis of energy production from so, from photovoltaic cells, which are generating about a thirty percent efficiency, which he developed in New South Wales and Australia. So, um, free enterprise aren't Australia. Let's not have governments funding. Let's it all happen to the marketplace. Lost out to China, which is quite happy to throw government money at something like this, and has created an extremely successful entrepreneurial class producing photovoltaic cells in China using what was originally Australian technology. Right. So, um, can, I guess we get by. I asked you a question last time about population can we have growth without uh, uh, without population growth and uh, the answer is yes if, we, if, if we're smart we can can we have economic growth with no growth in energy consumption well the, the answer has been I mean your point was uh, <coughs> not until the recent past but in the recent past well that's exactly what we've been doing isn't it yeah and if again if you look at uh, some of the technology being talked spoken about by Musk for bringing in the uh, the hyper the um, what they call the hyper tube because they oh, yeah, call yeah. hyper tube up to a, Edinburgh in yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That a large part of why that's supposed to be successful is reducing the amount of energy needed to move a mass from one point to another. So the work I've just recently done on on the idea of an energy based theory of production uh, talks about the energy fundamentally sees GDP as useful work. Most of that useful work is done by machines that harness of energy and turned it into useful work. The energy they can harness has gone up dramatically, but there's then the question of how much of that energy is available 
for the machine to actually turn it to useful work because part of the energy has to be done to maintain the machine itself and to reproduce the machine when it fails. So there's a ratio between available energy, which is called exergy, and the energy actually goes in. But the other component there is the efficiency with which that energy is used. And my ideal definition of efficiency uh, is an example of moving a, a mass of 100 kilos from London to Edinburgh, which is what? How far is that? 400k? No, it's about 400 miles. So it's further like than that. that. Further than that. Okay. The fastest, your maximum, your, your 1.0 definition for efficiency would be to hit that mass with a, with a force in London uh, that get it moving so that it would reach, make the, say, say, cover the distance in, in one hour and stop it at the other end. So it makes that change in one hour. That's your 1.0 efficiency. Now, you compare that to what would happen if you drove your car from London to Edinburgh. Uh, or if you flew a plane from London to Edinburgh, or if you had a hypertube from London to Edinburgh. And in each of those cases, there's a dramatic increase in potential efficiency. We'll never get to the 1.0, but a large part of what we can do right now is dramatically increase the efficiency with which we move uh, people from one point to another, with which we generate light. So for a lot of us, like I've been actually in my flat uh, after a couple of uh, light bulb failures, um, the uh, landlord here is, a, is a, a good guy, came along and installed uh, LCD, I think LCD lights, which use four watts of power to generate what an incandescent did with 120. Right. So we do have this tremendous capacity to increase the efficiency with which we use that energy. And that's partly why we saw energy peaking back in 1979 and having a lower level of energy up, uh, energy consumption in the UK, USA today than than uh, 40, 50 years ago. It's because partially because of income distribution issues, as I've said in the previous show, but also it's due to higher efficiency coming out of our technology, and we still have a long way to go. Right, but for uh, for government policy in that case, the most efficient thing the government can do is not what Donald Trump's doing in that case, which is just saying, "Well, look, we've got lots of energy. Let's produce more of it, and uh, and we'll see we'll see growth like we like we saw in the past during the Industrial Revolution and before. Uh, the more we the more energy we have, the more we, we we produce. Actually, the the clue is in making the use of energy more efficient. So, government should be looking at uh, investing in the sorts of projects that are going to increase that efficiency. Yeah, and that's not exactly Donald on Donald Trump's radar. No. So, um, you know, I think we're nor nor Tony Abbott, who's the Australian version thereof. Um, or even, or even Theresa May. Need coal rather than lumps of onions. <laughs> Theresa right. May. Yeah, well, Theresa May has. Uh, oh, no, I mean, she's just she's backtracked on a on an energy price cap to try and make energy more affordable. But hey, I mean, she's really talking about you know getting old people through a, another British winter. But I mean, if you put a price cap on energy, I'm trying to figure out would that help productivity? Would that drive more efficiency? Well, this, 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 or would that this, just take the profits out, the, out of power companies and reduce their investment in energy production? Yeah, yeah and it's quite there's good arguments. That Occasionally, the price being high for something is what led us to economise on using it. Mm. So if you look back at the Industrial Revolution, a very good argument as to why that occurred in the UK rather than occurring in France is the cost of labour was higher in the UK than it was in France by a substantial factor. So the spinning jenny, which replaced uh, one worker per spinning wheel with one worker for 15 spinning jennies, that was a successful innovation in um, in the UK, because despite the fact that they had to go through the cost of designing the Jenny and then building individual Jennies per worker, uh, that was more productive and cheaper uh, in terms of the cost of the cloth that was produced than it would have been in France, where in fact you would have, you wouldn't have broken even with the spinning Jenny given the lower cost of labour in France. So in that sense, again, the the high cost of oil back in 1979, courtesy of OPEC, 
uh, was a major spur to developing more energy efficient vehicles. And on the same front, whenever the cost of oil goes up, the level of investment in electric cars also goes up. So trying to put price caps inside there, uh, again, this is a case of not particularly effective government policy. That actually may slow down the, the, the extent to which we progress towards developing more energy efficient technology. So, um, yeah, so government policy, it's really, it really gets down to, I mean, not worrying too much about the price of oil because, uh, that, I mean, that is a, that, that's a transitory thing anyway. We've, we've seen it. it can be up and down within, within weeks and you can try and control supply, but it seems to find its level anyway. That's sort of an irrelevance, isn't it? What would, the, the way, the path forward, as you're saying, is efficiency, which makes it uh, how, how we use energy. We, perhaps we don't need as much as we're using now. We just need to be able to use it more efficiently, and that's how we're going to have economic growth. And that economic growth is going to be twofold. It's going to be short-term uh, for those industries that are developing this this new technology because they're employing more people uh, in in pushing forward this new technology. And then, obviously, in the longer term, the, the ensuing benefits from that. So it gets down to more of an investment in education, doesn't it, than anything else? Well, the innovation, not so much education per se. Again, a, a good case made in the, um, uh, the, the another one of my favourite documents, the Index of Economic Complexity, is that um, uh, having more pe- people having done more, more uh, even general science degrees, uh, won't necessarily increase your capacity to produce shoes. You need you need the actual technical skills as well. And uh, so it isn't just education, it's, yeah, it's developing the technology and the skills that go with it to manage uh, more efficient uh, production systems. So if you look at, uh, again, my, my favourite technology is always Elon Musk, and his latest thing is called the Boring Company. He apparently has worked out a faster way of boring holes uh, through solid earth so that you can have hypertubes between cities, as we're seeing you're talking about building between New York and Washington right now. So... It's always a case of you, you, you when you when you have those that it isn't just education per se. It's building up the skill set that means you know how to land the rocket on its ass rather than having it just crash back into the earth again, and you know how to drill, <coughs> pardon me, drill through uh, through rock more efficiently. So building a tunnel is cheaper than building a road. So um, yeah, it's acquiring that overall skill set, uh, which comes out of actually doing doing the stuff and the government's role there to some extent can be providing the the money that means they can lose money initially and the, the whole society carries that burden and it's government created money anyway uh, making use of resources that might otherwise be idle and then over time the private sector comes up with the new ideas that uh, make that uh, technology cheaper and more efficient in using energy right is anyone doing that? And this, this becomes less of a. I mean, energy is energy is at the China. heart. Of, right. Okay. But China. But China yes. is China seen China. as being China seen as being a consumer of uh, you know old fashioned uh, fuel as well. You know, big reliance on steel. One, big one steel production. Big reliance on coal. Yeah. People actually asked. Well, I was actually somebody Twitter saying, "I was bring back an e back from China." My last trip to China because I was, I went to China last in two thousand and fifteen, I think, and I was was just back again there um, in in July of this year giving a seminar in northern in northern China. But I went through Beijing on the way and this is just anecdotal and it might have been a good day, but I thought the the level of pollution seemed to be substantially down on what it was just two years ago. And it's partly because they're moving uh, forcibly moving production away from Beijing, but also there's been a, a, a definite shift in power production. They're not, they're not producing as many new coal-fired power stations every year. They're putting converters on, on factories where they used to let them get away without having the converters, and they're pushing towards large-scale solar. So, again, in that sense, I think the country which is 
probably doing the most rapid transition from coal, even though it's heavily dependent upon coal, the most rapid transition from coal to uh, renewable energy sources may well be China. And do you think, uh, even you know, if we didn't look at renewable energy, which obviously we should, but do you think that because we're seeing less power consumption because we are using energy more efficiently, do you think that is on track to continue for decades to come? I think it's, it's on track, f- f- certainly in terms of transportation, uh, we've got a, a major gain to be made there. In terms of lighting, the gains of, of, of now that we have LCD uh, lights, you know, where four watts is equivalent to 120 for incandescent, as they pass through, that's a substantial cost in the lighting costs. Some elements of how we use energy, uh, again, heating, uh, the, the the trouble with getting, getting heating to be more efficient is the building stock needs to be altered because it's really the loss of heat through buildings that is the major reason why it's expensive to heat buildings. Then you talk enormous capital costs, but we have 3D printing of housing coming up. So there's a whole range of factors. This is in, in that sense, it's quite a fascinating time in human history because at the same time as facing enormous and potentially species-threatening pressures from the impact of using too much energy on the biosphere. We're also developing the technology at the same time that's going in the opposite direction. I still remain a pessimist on what I think is going to happen in terms of an energy crunch for the planet. I think we're going to have the crunch before we go in the opposite direction. But and it, but if we if we realise the urgency of what we're doing, we, we could potentially, given the level of technology we've developed uh, with robotics and with... Uh, more efficient production of energy directly from source from photovoltaics and so on we could actually get past that crisis i think we won't it's 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 within 15 or 20 years if you could if you could just hold off on the pollution for 20 years and get to the technology in 20 years time i think we'd sail through this outer crisis but of course you can't you can't manipulate time like that. But it sounds like, uh, you know, the more fundamental question, if you're uh, a government that's looking at, you know, what direction its policy takes, is not to uh, take the Donald Trump approach, which is to say, well, how can we have more cheaper fuel? Uh, the fundamental question for for energy policy is how can we as a government make sure there's a more efficient use made of the energy that we're already producing? Yeah, I think that's right. And in that sense, China's doing it before the West is because to some extent it overshot. It got to the stage where the pollution was so bad in Hong Kong where there's very little industry left because of pollution coming over the hill from neighbouring production in the Shenzhen region. So it hit a ceiling. It hit a ceiling, quite literally. And and the, one of the advantages of the Communist Party system uh, is that you, you know, the, the elite can't avoid to breathe the air. Everybody else is breathing, and they've got the power to say, let's do something about it, which they're doing. So um, China, I think, may well lead the way in uh, within 15 years to get to the back of the stage where you have blue skies over China again. Um, because they, they would have made that shift and focused on efficiency and, and moving away from carbon-based energy sources faster than the West is going to do. So in the West, I mean, it's seen as being... Pre- so D- Donald Trump obviously is talking about, you know, prohibitive measures uh, <coughs> like those that, you know, he saw Obama introducing, but some of those might be necessary to drive this innovation, do you think? So, for example, uh, you know, if we say, well, yeah, cars can't drive in London at all now. Um, unless they're purely electric cars. So many people would say, well, that's, uh, that, that's very restrictive. It's bad for the economy because it stops people moving around, but actually, ultimately, could be the answer. Yeah, and often this is one of the ways... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a great uh, critic of, of regulations whether for the sake of bureaucracy, as you, as you know. I've seen too much of that in the university sector. <coughs> but often a set of standards of that nature actually push the innovation in the first place. And, uh, and that's what 
we should be looking at rather than simply saying let's produce more of the coal we've currently got. So the fundamental question we started with is do we need more energy to drive growth? And the answer is no, we don't. We just need to make better use of the energy that we have. And to an extent that's already happening, we just need to speed it up. For the next 20 or 30 years, uh, if we're going to go and continue in growing per capita after that, then I think when we start reaching the limits of efficiency, then more energy per head to have more growth. But the thing is, if we distribute the level of energy we've got per capita right now more fairly um, in a way that doesn't stifle the, the you know, capitalist uh, contingency towards innovation, I think we've reached a reasonable standard of living now that we could share comfortably on the planet. And uh, that might be a large part in stopping some of the populations we spoke about in the previous show as well. But will it happen with Donald Trump in charge? I'm not holding my breath. (laughs) It certainly seems to be going very quickly the other direction. But there again, how long is Donald Trump going to be in charge for? Maybe he's what we needed to realise what's wrong. Uh, We'll see. Uh, Always the optimist. Good to talk, Steve. Catch you again next time. Okay, mate. Bye. And next time, uh, we look at Bitcoin. Is it part of the way of the future or is it just a fad? Is it an example of the freedom of fiat money or has it just become another substitute for gold? And what of the influence of online currencies? Could they exist? Will they exist? What impact would they have? All that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening this time. We'll see you then. 